Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our series, Finding Forgiveness for the Worst of Sins, as we look in our Bibles to Psalm chapter 51, verses 1 to 4, with a message entitled, Accepting God's Verdict for Our Sins. Every single human being has regrets. Now, I know there are those who will tell you that they've lived a very full life and have no regrets, but I fear that those people have a very selective memory. Really, they should regret deceiving themselves. An inventory of every single human life not only discovers the sin within all of us, but it also discovers that there are moments that cause us, well, deep shame. We regret we acted as we did. We, we regret having caused disappointment for others, the hurt we have brought about, the shame we have brought upon the glorious gospel of our Lord. But when we're honest, we do have regret. And we might wonder, what are we to do with this? Are we to forget it? Try to remember the thing differently? Justify ourselves? Live with a lifetime of guilt? I mean, what are we to do? Some regrets are about opportunities in life that we've missed. We wish we'd pursued that career, or, or we wish we would have passed that exam, or we wish we would not have had that accident, or, or made that mistake, or, or we wish we had married so-and-so. I mean, there are enough of these, and there are some regrets that are deeper and more lasting than our mistakes and failures. Now, these are the regrets that are fed by our own sin. See, our sin can profoundly shape the course of our lives. I take, for instance, the man who commits adultery and then is exposed and then loses his marriage. You know, she can't trust him anymore. His children eventually turn against him, and he also loses the esteem of his friends. See, that kind of regret, once it settles in, is so deep and so lasting that it becomes the identifiable mark of a human life. People will say, oh, isn't that the guy who... And then they fill in the blank. That almost happened to King David. 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 recounts an incident in David's life that is so shameful that we might be surprised to find it in the Bible. I mean, after all, when we read the accounts of other ancient kings of the Middle East, all the failures and the losses at war, or the tragic policies at home, or, or even their personal failures, well, these have all been quickly scrubbed out of the historical record. But the Bible is not a document extolling the virtues of the king. It's a document extolling the virtues of a blameless and altogether glorious God. And when even kings break his law, the Bible records the moment without blinking or without whitewashing the incident. It tells us exactly what happened and invites us to contemplate what this means and invites us into the heart of wisdom. And so David is portrayed as the man who has allowed himself to become an adulterer and a man who deliberately put the husband of the wife on the front lines so that the enemy would kill him. Then he lied and manipulated to cover his crimes. Now, you might think, after so horrifying of an event, that we should throw David's memory into the category of shame and failure forever. I mean, we do think that, don't we? I mean, in our world, when powerful men sin. Those of us who have less power love to stand on the sidelines and hurl our self-righteous abuse at them. Indeed, such a man was Bahurim. As David would later flee Jerusalem because of the conspiracy of his own son Absalom and in consequence of this very sin, 
Bahurim watched the king fleeing Jerusalem and cursed him continually and threw stones in his direction. Many of us, I fear, might agree with Bahurim, for we delight in throwing stones at leaders and people of influence who have fallen. But are we so very different? What if our sins were held up to the same public scrutiny? How then would we fare? No, I fear that those who condemn the loudest do so without even the slightest bit of self-awareness, how they, in their gleeful pronouncements of curses, are displaying a hypocrisy that almost suffocates. But for his part, David's sudden confrontation with his own sin led him not to double down or to take his enemies out or, or to hide in a dark room somewhere or to hire spin doctors and twist the story. Instead, David, David repents. And does that sound to you as if he's getting off easy? Does repentance make you think of the person who said that he is sorry and then expects everyone to just forgive without even a hint of accountability or feeling of consequences? Well, if that's what you think, you've not read the account of David. Nathan the prophet confronted David in his sin, and then he made the following pronouncement, recorded in, in 2 Samuel 12, 11-12. This is what the Lord says, Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And in fact, that happened. After the sin became known, rebellion crept into David's home. One of his sons raped his sister. His brother, another of David's sons, murdered him for that. A civil war was spawned in the country. It tore the nation apart, and David was left as a fugitive running for his life. One night of sin and one lifetime of regret. It's essential to understand that David's repentance comes after this pronouncement. Certain sins simply change things, and no matter how hard you try, you really can't turn the clock back. The gifted pastor who sins sexually will find that his ministry will never be the same. The powerful leader who slanders others and is eventually exposed is never looked for for advice again. Some sins simply bear consequences that change things. But this is the key to everything that I'm going to be sharing this week. That doesn't mean it's the end or that your life is ruined or that all that is ever left to you is regret. There is something we can do. And David's life testifies to that. Listen up, my sinning friend, and take heart from what you hear. Put your hope in God and recognize despair as the opposite of faith. See, there are two psalms that record David's response to his sins. And for all of us who have regrets, listen up. What David writes in Psalm 51 and in Psalm 32 provides hope for all of us. If you have sins you don't think can be forgiven, these two psalms are for you. What we will find in these two psalms echoes what David's son Solomon said years later. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So this is for all who've sinned and want so desperately to find mercy. Psalm 32, which we will discuss later, is a thought-through, finely crafted poem about the benefits of confessing sin. It can be placed into the category of wisdom literature. It's David's instruction to all sinners, teaching us how to live well in the light of God's mercy. 
But Psalm 51, which we begin discussing today, is different. Psalm 51 feels raw. It's filled with emotion. Indeed, this psalm was was written shortly after David's sin was discovered and, and he was exposed. Psalm 51 is a cry from the heart. The phrases are short. The tone is laden with emotion. The phrases seem to jump from one thought to the other rapidly. They contain a flurry of requests. This is the prayer of the man whose sin is so deep that he wonders if he's going to drown in it. And I, for my part, am so grateful that this psalm is in our Bible, for this psalm is a template on how to repent rightly and find our way through to restoration. What do we do when we have disgraced our testimony, when we've left others disillusioned and discouraged because of our sin? Psalm 51 tells us what to do. Today, we'll examine the first four verses of this psalm. So let's begin with verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Please begin to notice the desperate nature of David's cry. He's desperate for God. See, one of the great temptations that many of us face when we sin is to do what Adam and Eve did after their sin. You'll recall that the text in Genesis reads that they heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden, and they hid. Sin creates that tendency in all of us. It's the tendency not to want to face God, to avoid him. See, after our sin and hypocrisy is exposed, the greatest temptation that any one of us will face is a temptation much greater than the sin that we have fallen into but it is rather the temptation to run from God. But it is this natural tendency that we must fight with all our heart. Our hope is not in the darkness or away from the hard questions. Our hope is in God. So let us run straight in his direction. And it is only there that we will find the resolution that we so desperately need. Your regular gifts as part of our Partner to Tell Monthly Partners have become the very backbone to sustain the Bible teaching programs of this ministry. Programs that reach out to every demographic using every medium possible, teaching the truth of the Bible, and it speaks into every question and concern of life. Partner to Tell Monthly Partners are critical to the ongoing ministry of Back to the Bible Canada's daily Bible teaching program with Dr. John Newfeld. They support the ongoing ministry to young adults through In Doubt. They help provide messages of hope and joy, shared daily that point to Jesus through Laugh Again. And now, our new television program, Truth in Life Today, which reaches potentially millions of households, offering biblical truth that engages culture. Thanks for what you're doing. And if you're interested in joining the ranks of the Partner to Tell Monthly Partners, do so today. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible. Let's return to the beginning of Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So let's talk about the marks of genuine repentance. The first, as we've already seen, is that our greatest need is for God, that nothing, 
not the embarrassment of having our sins exposed or the relationships we have broken or the change in our public status or the suffering we'll have to endure competes with this one thing. We need God. Now, verses 1 and 2 are really a model or a a template for genuine repentance that leads to exoneration before God. Hear me. Listen to what the Bible says. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. True confession purifies and cleanses. It's the best gift that we can receive. But how do we do this right? How do we truly confess our sins? Notice first that we must call to the Lord for mercy. That's what David did. Have mercy on me. That's what forgiveness is. It is mercy. Anyone who calls for mercy has used language that does not claim rights, but rather begs for favor. We can't demand forgiveness, but we can beg for mercy. We bring nothing to the table. We we have no tools to bargain with. We're not holding some ground. We don't have a give-and-take transaction. See, we come on our knees. It's a matter of attitude. It, It calls for mercy. Second, we must place our hope in the character of God. David uses two words here. The first is the word steadfast love. Another translation uses the word unfailing love and and still another loving kindness. This word is often found in the Old Testament. We sing a song, Thy loving kindness is better than life, from Psalm 63. At the destruction of Jerusalem, it was Jeremiah in Lamentations 3 verse 22 that said, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Steadfast love is one word in the Hebrew. And it means the love of God based upon God's covenant or God's binding agreement with his people. David is saying, have mercy on me, O God. And the only reason I would even beg you for mercy is because I know something of your character, that you're a God of love who enters into a covenant of love with sinners. See, without that knowledge, David would have fled from God in terror. Now, from the New Testament, We know that the only reason that that is possible is because of the cross of our Lord. The cross of Christ is God's covenant with sinners that brings us forgiveness. Now, the second word here is is the use of the phrase abundant mercy. Again, some translations will use the word pity. Look on my terrible condition, says David, and I pray, have pity on me. So this thought ought to fix something in our minds. When we go to God asking for forgiveness of our sins, we're not bargaining or even telling God of all the places that we haven't screwed up or, or even the places we've contributed to the, to the work of the kingdom of God. See, that's entirely irrelevant. God is not interested that, that you should think you've been doing relatively well except in this one area or that on the balance, your good deeds outweigh your bad. Confession is not a time to lay our case before God. That's not confession. Confession throws itself upon God's character for mercy. But there's one further element here. You know, first, we've said that our only hope is to call on God for mercy. And second, that our only hope is not on our performance, but on God's mercy. And now third, we must come to terms with personal moral evil in our lives. I want you to notice what David calls what he did. First of all, he calls it transgression. It means rebellion. 
David says, the reason I did this is because I raised my fist against you, God, and it was my rebelliousness. I would not submit. That's why this happened. The second word he uses is the word iniquity. The word means perversion or a a twisting of moral standards. He says, I'm guilty because I'm perverse, and my life is the twisting of everything that's moral and good. And the third word is the word sin. It means to miss the mark. See, I'm always amazed at how seldom we call sin, sin. Everything from, I'm sorry you felt hurt by what I did, to I guess I really blew it, or I was not watching my inner life. See, how easy it is to explain our behavior with words like mistake or affair or indiscretion or even dysfunctionality. But that's not all. See, we justify our behavior. You know, some in the, in the counseling industry have, have made a whole industry out of blaming of our parents or our society or of our schools or the police or others for our behavior. How often have you and I apologized and then explained our behavior by pointing to some external factor? Listen, that's not confession. That's not pleading for mercy. The reason that some of us never get clear of our sin is that we've never pled to God to have mercy on us on the basis of his love and then said to God, my deeds are pure moral evil and I have no defense. My only defense is the cross of Christ and until you and I come to that, we cannot be forgiven. How many of us are aware that there are some essential attitudes that give rise to true confession of sins, and those attitudes always drive us to God? You know, years ago, my daughter told me of a conversation she had had with several girls at her workplace around the area of sexuality. Now, my daughter was then unmarried, and she's an evangelical believer, and she talked about the importance of remaining a virgin until marriage. And another girl was there, and she was a Muslim girl who said she'd never have sex before marriage herself. She said it was a moral evil. But the third girl was a cavalier Catholic girl, and she said sex before marriage is no big deal. You can always go to the priest, and you can get that taken care of. Now, I'm going to say something that should be rather obvious, but needs to be said anyway. God is not fooled by hypocrisy. Forgiveness is not our little loophole that allows us to live any way we want to, that eternal escape clause that keeps us from being accountable for our behavior. True confession is deeply spiritual and a cleansing encounter with God. Let's take a look at how genuine confession happens. First, we're confronted by our sin. Psalm 51 verse 3 reads, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Sin doesn't just go away by itself. It confronts us. It reminds us who we are. It disturbs us and pricks our conscience and leaves us with despair. It confronts us. David admitted to that, and so must we. My sin stands before me, and I see it for what it is, and I see it for what it says about me. It's always before me. Whether I turn to the right or to the left, the sin remains an affront to me and to my God. And second, we're not only confronted by our sin, we see in our sin an offended God. Look at verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, some have criticized David at this point. 
They say that David has in fact sinned against Uriah, against Bathsheba, against his army and against the stability of the nation. He sinned against his family and he sinned by polluting the minds of his children. Now, that's all true, but here I think we misunderstand David. He wants to say that ultimately all sin is done against God himself. Sin stridently rejects God's standard, and therefore it is fundamentally a rejection of God himself. It is our identification with Adam, and for that matter, with Satan himself. It's this that makes sin so frightening. Our sin is our upraised fist against heaven and against the plans that God has for us. If all we want in confession is to get out of jail free, then the biblical doctrine of repentance has nothing to do with us. I once spoke to a woman who'd been slandering me and was looking for a way to bridge the gulf between us, and and the first words out of her mouth were, well, you're a Christian and you have to forgive me. Well, strangely enough, she was right. I did have to forgive her. But I just want you to see that's not repentance. If all we tell God is, well, you made a promise in the cross and you have to forgive me, well, then we've not yet identified our sin, neither have we repented. God holds the key to our lives and our eternity in his hand, and sin is an arrogant rejection of God himself. All sin is done against God, and all of this makes sin so frightening. And when sin is named for what it is, and when we completely own God's judgment on our sin, and when sin seems overwhelmingly sinful, as David reminds us, our only recourse now is to run towards God and to cry out, I should receive only condemnation from your hand, but I come on bended knee and with a shaking voice pleading for mercy. I have come because I know that you are a God of steadfast love and abundant mercy. John, let me ask you a question. Is this whole forgiveness thing sequential? Does somebody have to repent before I'm willing to forgive them? You know, it's a very important question, and it's not even that easy to answer. If by forgiveness we mean that we no longer harbor bitterness against that person, yes, that's required of us. If by forgiveness we mean that we treat that person with grace when we can, yes, that also is required. In fact, If we mean by forgiveness that we look to bless a person when that's in our power to do that, that also is required. But forgiveness does not mean reconciliation where there is no repentance. I actually don't think reconciliation is possible. So somewhere we're going to need some wisdom to help define our terms. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. So grateful to hear feedback from listeners as we celebrate 60 years of ministry. Friends of the ministry wrote recently to share how encouraged they've been over the years listening to the Bible teaching of Theodore Epp, how he was a great man of faith, vision, and faithfulness to the Word of God. And now they continue to listen every day with gratitude as Dr. Newfeld remains faithful to this same legacy. The Word of God does not change, and we continue to celebrate its truth and the good news shared for all mankind. Thank you for allowing us the privilege to continue a 60-year legacy of Bible teaching made possible through the prayers and gifts of friends like you right across Canada for six decades. 
Please continue with your gracious support as the truth of God's Word is broadcast across our nation. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca today.